10 or 12 years ago, I was invited to the Turkish embassy in Washington, D.C. And one of the things that I shared with them is the importance of Turkey today uh, as a crossroads. Turkey is sitting on a gold mine and they don't even realize. And the gold mine are its antiquities. Seriously, there are more ancient sites and ancient sites that are better preserved than you find in Greece. Welcome. This is the Unconventional Ministry Podcast, where the conversation is about fresh ideas in ministry, innovative approaches, and collaborative efforts. I'm your host, Dennis Weens, Vice President for Ministry Partnerships at SAT7 USA. My guest is Dr. Mark Fairchild, Professor of Bible and Religion at Huntington University in Indiana. Mark is also a world-renowned archaeologist and a Fulbright Senior Research Scholar for this academic year. Dr. Fairchild has made numerous academic contributions to biblical research. He has discovered several previously lost cities, as well as the discovery of the oldest synagogue in the world. This is part two of my podcast conversation with Dr. Fairchild, and we pick up the conversation talking about his discovery of this oldest synagogue in the world. And some of his research he is doing in Turkey of the underwater basilica in Nicaea. This research is looking at the probability that this basilica was the site of the well-known Council of Nicaea. This, of course, is where 300 church leaders in the early church met with the Emperor Constantine, culminating in the confessional statement known as the Nicene Creed. Welcome, Dr. Fairchild. Thank you very much, Dennis, and pleased to be here. Uh, Glad to share with your audience. You're credited with finding the oldest synagogue in the world, and you've identified it, you've documented it. Talk to us about that synagogue. It was in uh, 2007, the first year that I came to this area called Rough Cilicia. I had been in Turkey several years prior to that. But in 2007, I came here, uh, knowing, of course, that Tarsus, this is Paul's hometown, And then I also knew that there are many ancient cities southwest along the coast that uh, I wanted to investigate. So I came to uh, a modern town that's called Ayash in Turkey, uh, which was the ancient site of Eleusia Sebast, a Roman uh, seaport town. And I was exploring some of the ruins and somebody saw me in the ruins. And so they walked out to where I was. And I thought, oh boy, you know, I'm going to be in trouble. But in fact, uh, it wasn't trouble at all. This was a, uh, a person who lived nearby. His name was Davut. And uh, he was wondering where I was from and what I was doing and what I was interested in. And he began to show me around uh, to many sites in this area. Well, one of the sites that he took me to was a place called Chetiorin. It's in the wilderness. Okay, there's a reason why they call this area rough Cilicia, because there are um, gorges and canyons that are quite incredible throughout this region. And so he dropped me off by the side of the road. From the side of the road, you could see that there was a a temple. I discovered that it was a temple to Hermes, the god Hermes, very well-preserved temple. And it's on a ridge. And I have to go down my ridge where the road was to the bottom and then climb up the other side. And the ascent to the top of the central ridge was not easy. So I had to negotiate and weave my way up and back. And along the way, I passed several ruins. 
turns out this was actually a fortress to guard the interior. And among the ruins, there was a, uh, a structure. As I was passing by, I looked to my left, and there was a menorah etched onto the lintel, which is the top of the door. I thought, really? So I took several photographs um, and then continued on my journey to go up to the, uh, the Hermes Temple. Uh, when I returned to the United States, I thought, surely I'm not the only person who's seen uh, this site or this synagogue. So I began to do research to find out who else has been here. And it turns out nobody had discovered the synagogue. But there was one person who had come to this site 130 years ago. His name was J. Theodore Bent. Uh, he traveled through this uh, area and he came to Chateauren and he described the Hermes Temple. He also described some of the inscriptions. Uh, so I know he was at the same place, but he failed to mention anything about the synagogue. And that's not surprising because the, the site is heavily overgrown with brush. And many times you just have to push your way through the brush if you're going to get to wherever you want to go. So uh, I wrote up an article in the Biblical Archaeology Review. I've got a PDF copy of that on my website. And it was published. Shortly after it was published, I received an email from the Jewish Institute of Archaeology in Vienna. It's part of Vienna University. And they asked me if I'd come out and do a uh, symposium to present, you know, what it is that I had discovered at the site. And I actually, by the time I came to Vienna, I had been back to Chateau, and I, I forget, maybe one or two more times, so I did additional uh, research on it. And they had scholars from New York. Uh, Steve Fine, who's become a good friend of mine, uh, teaches at Yeshiva University in New York, and uh, scholars, uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem had come together. So we talked about what it is that I had discovered. And uh, so it was a good time. Now, all this discovery that you're doing, you're documenting, is this being preserved in museums or is the country of Turkey helping you preserve some of this early history that you're discovering and talking about? The short answer is no, just to expand upon that a little bit. Now, Turkey doesn't have a whole lot of money. Turkey is loaded with archaeological sites. I have been to more than 450 archaeological sites that date back to the Greek period, Hellenistic period, or the Roman period, 450 throughout Turkey, all over the place. Most of those have never been excavated. You see, Turkey in the past has never been interested in examining their antiquities. Never. I mean, most of what the Turkish people are interested in is when did Islam come into the land and push out the Byzantines, the Christians. So this is, this is really not much of an interest in Turkey until recently. 10 or 12 years ago, I was invited to the Turkish embassy in Washington, D.C. Uh, and one of the things that I shared with them is the importance of Turkey today uh, as a crossroads and a link between the Islamic world and the Christian world, between the East and the West. Uh, and I also talked about the importance of Turkey's past, because again, Turkey is the land bridge that unites Asia and Europe. Even today, Turkey straddles the two continents. And so as a consequence, there's been all kinds of travel across Turkey. And as a consequence, you also see all kinds of cultures. You see the Urartus 
civilizations in the eastern part of Turkey. You see the Hittites, uh, you see the Greeks, the Romans. We can go on and on and on about all the different uh, cultures that are here. But one of the things I shared with the diplomats at the embassy is that Turkey is sitting on a gold mine and they don't even realize it. And the gold mine are its antiquities. Seriously, there are more ancient sites and ancient sites that are better preserved than you find in Greece. If Turkey were to develop these sites and to improve their infrastructure, most of these sites are very remote, so they don't have roads there. Then Turkey is going to attract huge numbers of tourists. And we've seen this in recent years. Like I say, when I talked with the embassy, that was 10 or 12 years ago. And right now, people are starting to understand Turkey, not only its historical sites, but also the importance of Christianity uh, in Turkey. What was interesting about that is most of the diplomats themselves didn't know what I was showing them. I was showing them photographs of what Turkey has. You're also this year the Fulbright Senior Research Scholar, and you're actually in Turkey and doing some more fascinating research. And you're at the place where Submerged Basilica is, where 300 church leaders in the early church met with the Emperor Constantine. The culminating document, confessional statement known as the Nicene Creed, was written at that point. You know, for Sat 7, our doctrinal position is the Nicene Creed. So this is fascinating that you're there uh, researching this uh, basilica that's underwater. Talk to us a little bit about what you're looking for in that uh, Nicene Creed there in Turkey. Yeah, I had visited Nicaea several times. And one of the times I was there, I met Mustafa Shaheen. Mustafa Shaheen is the archaeologist, head of the archaeology department at Uludağ University in Bursa. And uh, what they had discovered in 2015 through aerial photography is that there was a structure that is submerged in Lake Iznik. It's about uh, maybe 50, 60 meters offshore. It's about six to 10 feet deep. And so he began uh, exploratory excavations on the structure. And he asked me to write an article, which uh, we together published in the Biblical Archaeology Review. Again, that's on my website if people want to read that. And then he's asked me to uh, be more involved uh, with the uh, research that's going on. My working hypothesis, and this is what the Fulbright uh, Research Scholarship is all about. My working hypothesis is that the structure probably originated as a marturian. A marturian is a church that was built around the tomb of an early martyr. Now, by doing a little bit of historical research, we know that there was an individual by the name of Neophutos who was martyred in the early fourth century. Early fourth century. We're talking about uh, six or seven AD in Nicaea. The early Christians would honor martyrs and saints by, how can we say, by recognizing the place where they were buried. And also, many of the early Christians also wished to be buried near the saint. So a necropolis grew up and around where Neophutos was buried. Later on, after the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Milan was issued in 313 AD. Edict of Milan was very important. It was jointly issued 
by Constantine in Licinius. Licinius was also emperor at that time. And that is when Christianity became legal. Okay, it's the, the edict that allowed Christians to practice their faith without being persecuted. And so at that time, the structure was first built, a marturian. Then later on in time, a masonry, a stone masonry church was constructed over what was originally built there. The stone masonry church was probably constructed, again, this is something that we still need to investigate, but probably the latter part of the fourth century. And if that's the only structure that existed, it could not have been the structure where the Council of Nicaea met. But my working hypothesis was that after the Edict of Milan, a wooden structure was built there first. That was the structure where the Council of Nicaea first met. One of the attendees to the Council of Nicaea is the early church historian Eusebius. Eusebius was actually present there. He wrote a a book called History of uh, Christianity, Ecclesiastical History, actually. That's Ecclesiastical History. Uh, He tells us that when they first met, they squeezed into a place of worship. There were 300 members. And uh, of course, that number is disputed because some of the other early authors tell us that there were more than that. Some of them say that there was a little bit less than that, but approximately 300 members that came together for the Council of Nicaea. They were representing early church leaders from across the Mediterranean world. The Council of Nicaea probably met for several weeks, perhaps as long as three months. At the end of the Council of Nicaea, they gathered together in Constantine's palace. The emperor had a palace that was nearby. And the palace as Eusebius describes the assembly, was large and there was plenty of room for people to assemble together in the palace. Now, I compare those two statements because what Eusebius says when they first gathered together for the proceedings, they squeezed into a structure which was described as a place of worship. Later on, when they came to their conclusions and voted on the matter, Uh, The place is not described as a place of worship. Instead, it's Constantine's palace. And it's a a place where they seem to have plenty of room. So what I'm basically saying is that the first place was a structure, which I believe uh, has been discovered in Lake Iznik. Listening to you describe all this makes me want to read more and follow some of your research. How can uh, we find more information or follow and find out what your conclusions are here in the months and years moving forward. How can people get more information on your your journey? Well, I, I plan on publishing an article, perhaps even a book, depending upon how big the article is or how much material that I've got. But it's a, it's a bit premature for me to say uh, when that will be available or um, where it's going to be published. Yeah. But you have a website where you have a lot of these documents? The only document that I have on my website My website is ancientbiblicalworld.com, and I have a lot of my lectures from Huntington University. I've got many of my publications there. I have many photographs. There's a lot of stuff for people to examine, but uh, I only have one article on Nicaea, and that's the article that I've mentioned previously. 
that was published by the Biblical Archaeology Review. You're a professor of Bible and religion at Huntington University in Indiana. Uh, tell us a little bit just briefly about the university, and I'm sure some are familiar with it. Some probably aren't familiar with it. I know I read somewhere an article published by the university that the Raiders of the Lost Ark had Indiana Jones, but the Last Apostle film has Indiana Mark. So your university must refer refer to you as Indiana Mark. Uh, no, most people refer to me as Professor Fairchild. Um, I'll tell you what happened. is I was hired to teach at Huntington University 35 years ago, and it has been a pleasure to serve at Huntington University. We're a Christian liberal arts institution. We've got a great academic reputation, and the administration has been wonderful in allowing me to do the research that I'm doing. Uh, when I started coming to Turkey, I travel all over the place. I usually travel by myself, even if I'm in the wild. A lot of my Turkish friends are afraid that I'm going to fall and get hurt. So they're, they're very much concerned about me, especially when I travel on my own. And then what I've done also is I've had seminars with uh, Turkish tour guides, because the Turkish tour guides don't know much about Christianity, just like the rest of the people of Turkey don't know much about Christianity. And so if they're going to have people come over here to visit the biblical sites, the tour guides need to know what the biblical sites are all about and how they connect with the scriptures. So I had a seminar, I'm guessing seven years ago, with more than 80 tour guides that came in from Istanbul, Ankara, Antalya, uh, Izmir, and, and several other places. And I was teaching them about early Christianity and some of the places that are uh, biblical sites in Turkey. And they began to call me uh, Indiana Mark, simply, you know, a, a takeoff of Indiana Jones. During that time, one of the participants in the seminar took the picture of Indiana Jones. I don't remember which film it was. And they transposed and put my face into that shot. They then made a t-shirt, they gave me a poster, and at the end of the seminar, of course, we had a, a dinner where we all gathered together, and uh, that's when they presented it to me. And so that name is kind of stuck with my Turkish friends. And somehow, I don't know how, but somebody at the university, Huntington University, picked up on that. And so they've labeled me that, I think, on a few occasions, perhaps our PR department picked up on that and used it again. I read it in an article, and um, I just want to thank you for your considerable contribution to understanding the biblical narrative and the application to our lives. Uh, I think a couple of your alumni produced that movie, The Last Apostle. I watched it on Amazon Prime, and I encourage all of our listeners to watch The Last Apostle. Two uh, Huntington University alumni, I believe, produced this, followed you for a couple weeks and documented your trekking across uh, Turkey and Cyprus. So it was a great film. Well, our time's up, but I want to thank you, Dr. Mark Fairchild, for this uh, fascinating conversation and some of your work. And I'm sure uh, give that website again so people can get on your website and learn more about what you're finding out. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Dennis. God bless you and God bless your audience. What's your website again? Ancientbiblicalworld.com. Ancientbiblicalworld.com.
www.thepowerofpositivelifestyle.com. We'll put it in the notes as well so everybody can have a hyperlink to some of this research. So thanks again for joining this Unconventional Ministry podcast. This is a fresh idea and an innovative approach. So thank you for your contribution in this time and this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for all that you do. In our changing world, there are more ways than ever to do ministry. SAT7, as a broadcast media ministry, is changing how ministry is done. Through innovative approaches, collaborative efforts, broadcast satellite television, web streaming, and social media, SAT7 is making a difference. Visit SAT7 online today at sat7usa.org to learn ways you can be a part of this kingdom work. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with your friends. If you know of an unconventional ministry approach, please introduce us. We'd like to have them on as guests. Thank you again for joining this episode of the Unconventional Ministry Podcast. Mm